rejoice and we're glad in it. Uh, thank you for the blessing of being able to gather together um, among your people uh, to hear from your word and worship you. And I pray that you would um, guide us by your Holy Spirit. Um, use your word to instruct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are handouts. Uh, if you don't have one, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. Got to raise it higher than that, Russ. Are you just waving at someone? Oh, okay. Um, so, so last week, Keith finished a series on the Trinity, so we're beginning a new series this week. And we're coming back to Bible survey. Uh, periodically, we survey a book of the Bible. And we've been working our way through the Old Testament for quite a while. And uh, back in the summer, you may recall Rod May um, surveyed the book of Esther for us. And so now we're on Job's doorstep. So go ahead and open up to Job chapter 1. Um, there's a number of things that we need to do today uh, before we get uh, to the text, although we'll get there shortly. Um, we need to kind of lay a solid foundation this week and next week as we approach the book of Job. Um, so some preliminary things. Uh, first of all, just very briefly, who wrote the book of Job? Answer, we don't know. Uh, of course, the book is about Job, but Job himself didn't write it. Um, we can learn a lot about the author by reading the book. We would understand that whoever the author was, um, he would be numbered among the ancient wise men of Israel. Um, his writing is very much um, in keeping with the literature and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms. This is why the book of Job is located there in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, he would be very educated. His language is varied. His vocabulary is rich. And one more brief comment. You'll notice that, of course, the vast majority of the book of Job is written in poetry, not prose. Now, I can't tell you why it's written in poetry, but I think that the quality of the poetry in the book of Job um, is really only surpassed occasionally by the Psalms. Um, even though it has difficult themes, and tricky subject matter, I think the book of Job is a joy to read, especially in large chunks. Now, what about date? Um, two questions regarding date. Um, when did the events in the book of Job take place? And when did this unknown author write them down? Well, those two questions uh, do not have the same answer. Uh, we can deal with um, when, did, um, when did the events take place, because that's more easily answered. Uh, we would understand that the life of Job would have occurred very early in biblical history, uh, probably um, leading up to or during the patriarchal times, that is, think the time of Abraham. Uh, so if we were to put Job chronologically in the Bible, he would be somewhere in early to mid-Genesis. Um, as far as when this author wrote down the book, well, that's perhaps a less important question, uh, but it's worth pointing out that there are a couple of clues elsewhere in the Old Testament of where we see Job referred to. Um, the prophet Ezekiel refers to Job as a faithful man alongside Noah and Daniel. Now, it's not clear if that reference is um, to an actual written-down book, or maybe Ezekiel was familiar with what was perhaps a well-known epic of Job's life, not yet written down, we're not sure. Um, but it seems like the prophet Jeremiah um, very clearly refers to the written book of Job. Jeremiah chapter 20 appears to be 
possibly quoting directly from Job chapter 3. And so we'll look at that next week when we come to Job chapter 3. And so maybe if anyone really wants a date, um, it could be safe to put the writing of Job in the 7th century B.C., um, probably around the time that Judah is exiled into Babylon. So, enough about that. What about the themes in the book of Job? Well, as I said, we need to be careful because it is possible as we kind of, if we approach the book of Job without any understanding um, of what the overall message of the book is, we could run into trouble. And commentators have been aware of this for a long time. Uh, the first commentary that was translated into and published in English on the book of Job was written by a Calvin student, Theodore Beza, and uh, he was aware of the risks in studying Job, and he said this, quote, There are many hard and dark places, insomuch as I must of necessity sail, as it were, among the rocks, and yet I hope I shall not make any shipwreck, end quote. And so, like Beza, I also would like us to not make shipwreck today or any time this week. Um, so let's think about what the themes are, because that will help us approach the text itself. Um, first of all, as I said before, this is very much within the wisdom tradition. Very similar in some ways to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, but with a different thrust or a different approach. The book of Job is not didactic or... Um, proverbial, it's really more of a case study in wisdom, using Job's life and the things that happened to Job as a case study in wisdom. We'll see good and bad applications of wisdom, and we'll see good and bad interpretations of wisdom in this book, and we'll see it from multiple perspectives, from Job's perspective, from Job's wife, um, from Job's friends, from God, and even from Satan. Now, if we were to categorize the themes, and I like categories, I need to break things down, um, we might find two kind of broad uh, categories. First of all, the problem of suffering, and then what one commentator calls the moral order of the world. Now let's think about some different aspects of these. When we think about the problem of suffering, we're going to see at least these three different parts of that uh, in the book. First of all, innocent suffering. Um, one of the thorniest issues, in fact, that the book of Job deals with um, is that the righteous or the innocent may suffer terribly. And we'll see that today for sure. Next, the dimensions of suffering. We'll see that the suffering that Job experienced touches every part of his life. It's multi-dimensional. It touches his family, his possessions, his property, his reputation in the community, and of course it touches him uh, very severely personally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. So the, the dimensions of suffering. And then we have what I would call the struggle to overcome suffering. And maybe this is where the wisdom tradition shines the brightest in the book, for as part of this case study in wisdom is showing us, you and me, how we should respond to suffering when we experience it in our own lives. So the problem of suffering and then the moral order of the world, what does this mean? Well, I might say that the book of Job asked the question, is there a moral order of the world? 
That is, is there any rule by which good is rewarded and wickedness is punished? Now, you might say, well, yes, of course, there's a rule by which good is rewarded and wickedness is punished. And we would have good biblical ground to say that. This is what's known as the doctrine of retribution. The belief that there is an exact correspondence between one's behavior and one's destiny. To put that another way, one might say that piety or devotion to God brings prosperity and wickedness or sin brings pain and disaster. Or in perhaps the most familiar way is that phrase, you reap what you sow. Now, this, certainly, um, this doctrine is certainly presented to us and exemplified in both the Old and the New Testaments. Consider these verses, some of which I'm sure you're familiar with. Proverbs 3.33 says, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Romans 8.13 says, If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then also, think for just a minute about John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who was born blind. Now, we're not going to delve into this too far. We might look at it some more in the coming weeks. But if you realize the question that the disciples asked Jesus in John 9, verse 2, it says, His disciples asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? I think their question is underlined or built upon the doctrine of retribution. The disciples personally had an understanding at some level that someone must have sinned in order for this man to be born blind. But the question the book of Job raises, is the doctrine of retribution really correct? Or at least correct in all cases? Or are there exceptions? Is the doctrine of retribution immutable fixed, inflexible? I'm not going to answer that question right now. It's one of the questions that's raised by the book. And then we have questions about God's justice. Um, the book of Job, or Job himself to be precise, um, he calls God's justice into question. And this is because Job's personal experience seems very much in conflict with the traditionally understood doctrine of retribution. Um, so the issue of theodicy is raised in the book of Job. That is, um, the book of Job deals with um, why God permits evil in the world. The book doesn't solve that conundrum for us. And none of us should think that this Sunday School series is going to solve that conundrum for us. Um, but the book of Job deals with that and engages with it. And we'll have to engage with that today as we look at the text. And then finally, the last aspect of this theme of the moral order of the world is God's incomprehensibility. 
And now I'm almost tempted to say that this is perhaps the most important part of this theme that we see in the book of Job. Um, because of all the questions raised by the book of Job, um, they are not all given answers. At least not clear, concise, black and white answers. And I think it's for this reason that a lot of times um, people that are suffering, they come to the book of Job, uh, many times probably sharing a lot of the same questions that Job has. Um, and I think they often go away disappointed because answers to their questions are often not forthcoming in this book. I would even say that for each of the answers given in the book of Job, almost three more questions are raised. And so I think it's here, and this especially comes forth at the end of the book, when God finally speaks to Job. I think it's here where God's incomprehensibility looms largest. And this simply means that God, in his essence and in his ways, cannot be fully understood. And we have to be content with that. Job's questions, our questions, they're not necessarily entitled to be given answers. Or, if they were given answers, we shouldn't expect our finite minds to comprehend those answers, to be able to understand. We'll see this as our survey progresses. So we're almost ready to dive into chapter one, um, but if you want to look at the table on the bottom of your first page of your handout, um, let's think about the framework of the book. This is kind of the roadmap. I like to see how the book lays out. Um, this will help us um, get a feel for it and where we're going. And, and you might be very familiar with this, um, but indulge me for just a moment. Um, most broadly, the book of Job is in three parts. There's a prologue, a dialogue, and then an epilogue. In the prologue, we learn who Job is and the terrible things that happened to him. And then the dialogue makes up the vast majority of the book, and it has these cycles of speeches um, where one of Job's friends speaks, then Job responds to that friend. Another friend speaks, Job responds to that friend, and so forth. But the dialogue begins, however, in chapter 3, where Job is the one that speaks, and he pronounces this lamentation or this curse over the day of his birth. And that's actually a critical piece, I think, to understanding how the rest of the dialogue plays out. So we're going to look carefully at chapter 3 next week. But the bulk of the dialogue, as I said, which is really makes up most of the book, is this back and forth between Job and his friends. Also, interspersed within that, Job occasionally crying out to God further in prayer and for a long time, God doesn't answer. Eventually, Job actually challenges God to a lawsuit. He wants to take God to trial. We'll see how that turns out. Um, that's, followed, that's followed by this fascinating hymn to wisdom in chapter 28. And then his final words are in chapter 31, where he has this avowal of innocence and then the fourth friend, Elihu, enters a picture and he speaks long-windedly for six chapters, um, to which Job makes no response. And then finally, God speaks in chapter 38 through 41. And then there's the epilogue, where we see Job is restored. So that's where we're headed, and now we're ready 
Job chapter 1. I'll read, first of all, verses 1 through 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons used to go and hold the feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now I think immediately questions arise in our mind. Let's think through some of them. And we're going to do this by looking at these three main characters presented to us in chapter 1. First of all, Job. Um, the question that first comes to my mind is almost, could a man like this really have, have existed? The way he is described is amazing. And of course the answer is yes, Job was a real man, he did exist. But in verse 3, it's pretty remarkable that he's described as the greatest man in all the East. And indeed, Job was a great man. I think we should understand that his wealth was unsurpassed. It's quantified here in the number of his flocks and herds. I think we would see he was ultra-wealthy for his day, certainly in the top 1%, as they say. And I think along with this would have come great respect and stature in the community. And we'll actually see later on in our survey in chapter 29, Job describes the way that he um, had this kind of exalted place in society. So he was an elder in the community, as it were, a man of respect and wisdom. Not only was Job a great man, but he was a family man. Um, he enjoyed material blessings, but also familial blessings. He and Mrs. Job had ten children, seven sons and three daughters. And I think he was a scrupulous father. I think rearing his children in the fear of the Lord 
verse 5 describes how he would um, offer sacrifices on behalf of his children in the event that perhaps they might have sinned inwardly or cursed God in their hearts. Now, some people have trouble with Job's children. And I would like to say that I don't think that any of us should see Job's children as living rebellious, um, carousing, or being profligate in any way. In order for us to rightly understand what happens, the way the argument of the book unfolds, we shouldn't see Job's children as being irresponsible or rebellious. Rather, I think that yes, Job's sons knew how to enjoy life, as should we, to God's glory, and they loved to show hospitality to their sisters. I think Job and Mrs. Job had raised a tight-knit family that loved one another and enjoyed being together. Now, lest anyone is tempted to bring a charge against Job of poor parenting or raising irresponsible children, we need to remember uh, verse 1, where we see that Job was a righteous man. I think this is perhaps the most striking thing that said all of the description about Job. Um, Notice the words used. He was blameless, upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. Now we'll see that that exact same description is verbatim quoted by God in verse 8, and it's repeated again in chapter 2, verse 3, which we'll see next week. So what does this tell us about Job? Well, just very briefly, being blameless, that's being above reproach. Similar to the idea we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where the New Testament describes qualifications for elders and deacons. This simply means that no charge could be leveled against Job that would stick to him. There was nothing in his life that you could point at, necessarily. He was above reproach. Being upright, I think, has to do with ethical aspects. He delighted, I think, in God's statutes. Doing the right thing was the way his life was characterized. Fearing God, well, of course, this is reverence and awe for God. Living in a way that shows great respect and submission to the Lord. And I think that also results in him trusting the Lord. And then turning away from evil. I think Job had a habit of battling temptation. He wasn't perfect. This text is not telling us Job was perfect. But nevertheless, he sought to remain morally pure and just. Really, I think this is a comprehensive description of what a godly life looks like, whether you're a man or a woman. And so now we come to what I think is one of the interpretive keys of the book of Job. But we have to consider it carefully. Because it seems like in these first few verses of chapter 1 that the doctrine of retribution is spelled out as plain as day. Because first of all, Job is described as a pious man. And then we see that Job is prosperous. So that looks like that he is uh, reaping what he's sowing. In a good way. However, what we know about what's about to happen in chapter 1, plus what we know about what happens in chapter 2, By the time we get there, we'll be at a place where, well, yes, Job is pious, certainly, but Job suffers terribly. So what does that say about the doctrine of retribution? What is this interpretive key? 
Well, I'll say it more than once today and probably more than once in each succeeding week because if we fail to understand this, I think we'll fail to understand the rest of the book. And so do you know what the key is? Should I continue to keep you in suspense? It's this. Job's suffering is not the result of his personal sin. Job's suffering is not the result of his personal sin. Now, if that seems like a no-brainer to you, or, well, that's obvious, well, just put that on the sticky side of your brain and bring it with you each time we come to this survey because we will have to return to this repeatedly that Job's suffering is not the result of his personal sin. Finally, we've seen what Job is. What about what was Job not? Well, it's worth saying that Job was not an Israelite, as it were. He was not really part of that covenant people. They really hadn't even been constituted yet, if this was even before the time of Abraham. He was not a Hebrew. Now, why does that matter? Well, I think it's important because I think what happens to Job and his response to what happens to him should be seen as transcending any cultural or national divides. Derek Thomas says that Job is a representative of humanity in the sense that he should be seen as an example for all people of all times and all places. So that's Job. The next two characters we have in chapter 1 we'll consider together because they're presented very closely together, and that's God and Satan. Um, we have this exchange between God and Satan in verses 6 through 12. And interestingly, wherever it's rendered Satan throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the Hebrew, it's actually the Satan. It's the adversary. It's really more of a title than a proper name. And so what is the context of this exchange between God and the Satan? Well, I think it's a very puzzling one. Again, this raises a number of questions, none of which that I have answers for, because I don't think the text gives us answers to questions like these. First of all, where does this exchange between God and the Satan take place? I don't know. Is this a normal recurring event that happens on a regular basis where God has chats with the Satan? If so, why? If not, if this is not a normal recurring event, why is it happening now? Is there something unique about this situation? I don't know. How can this happen? How can Satan enter into God's presence? Why would God allow it? Why does God ask the Satan a question about his whereabouts in verse 7? Wouldn't God already know? Well, I don't have answers to any of those questions. And you may have other questions raised by this passage. But perhaps the question that disturbs me the most is the one that God asks in verse 8. I think this is one of the more chilling moments in the entire Bible. Where God says to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Because from one perspective, everything that comes after this, Job's trial, everything that happens, is, could be seen as a result 
of God posing this question to the Satan. What if the Satan had not considered Job? Perhaps Job wasn't even on the Satan's radar. Perhaps the thought of tempting and testing Job had never occurred to the Satan. Well, as chilling as I find that thought, I think there are at least two things we can be certain about based on this exchange we have here. In general, we have to say, I think, that God is the initiator of all that comes to pass. He is providentially ruling over and bringing about all things. Now, I know that most of us, hopefully all of us, readily accept that because the Bible clearly teaches it. But in a moment, I think we'll see the difficulty this brings. And in this particular situation, God is sovereign, the Satan is not. This is presented to us as these sons of God, these fallen angels or demons coming to present themselves before God. They are very much in submission and subject to the Lord. God is in charge here, not the Satan. Now, once God asks the question, and the Satan considers what God has said about Job, the Satan makes an assertion that's really an assault, I think, on all the intentions and motivations of God's faithful children. And it's also, I think, a profound misunderstanding of the faithfulness of God's children. Look at verse 9 through 11 again. The Satan answered and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. So the Satan effectively says, sure, Job appears to live a pious life, but only for what he gets out of it. Look at all the things you've given him, God. If you were to take those away, Job's no longer going to be godly at all. So really, I think the Satan is taking the doctrine of retribution, turning it around and using it for his own advantage. Saying that Job's piety, that is his blamelessness, his uprightness, his fearing God, and his turning away from evil, that all of that is conditioned upon the blessings God has given him. And if God were to take those blessings away, well, then Job would then curse God. That's what Satan asserts. And again, fully in charge of the situation, God grants Satan the power to deprive Job of his property and his possessions, but he gives him a boundary. You can't touch Job himself. Now, that boundary is going to move next week. But for now, the Satan has to leave Job himself alone. Now, let's read verses 13 through 19. Now, it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, 
the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, I think we have to immediately say that none of us can understand this. At some level, personally, I think this is beyond imagining something like this happening to us. I think the severity and completeness of what transpires is really only matched by the speed at which it takes place. I think there's a breathlessness about what happens here. One messenger arriving on the heels of the other one as he leaves, bringing what I think would have been a hard-to-imagine message if only one of these things had happened to Job that day. But four different times, four occasions, one after the other, all that we saw that belonged to Job in verses 1 through 3 is now gone. Everything listed in verses 1 through 3 is now gone. And with no advance warning. I think the scene set by verses 13 and 14 is meant for us to see this was a scene of domestic tranquility. All was at rest. Job's children were enjoying their time together. Job's servants were at work. We know this because someone had to be driving the oxen at the plow. The donkeys were feeding. What an idyllic scene. There was nothing to lead Job or us to think that disaster was imminent. And so with no advance warning, the oxen and donkeys are taken by the Sabaeans, the sheep are consumed by fire, the camels are taken by the Chaldeans, the servants are put to the edge of the sword, and Job's children are crushed beneath the roof that collapsed in their oldest brother's house. Not only with no advance warning, but for no apparent reason, at least no reason that Job can see. We have to remember that here and throughout the entire rest of the book, Job remains entirely ignorant of this exchange that took place between God and the Satan. So while Job will not know why or the origin of what's befallen him, and we'll only see glimpses as we go, I think it's worth asking, how did this happen? What or who brought about this tragedy in Job's life? I think the text would ask us to probe a little bit, carefully, into God's providence. Again, in order for us to rightly see how the argument of the book unfolds, we need to think about this. Well, we have the Sabaeans, a marauding tribe. We have the Chaldeans, another roving band of evil perpetrators. Yes, they did this to Job, and they bear responsibility for their evil acts. And we have the Satan. He is intimately involved in this tragedy that came upon Job's life, and he bears responsibility for his evil acts and schemes. But we also have fire that came down from heaven, and we have this fierce wind, probably something like a tornado, 
who or what bears responsibility for that? Well, someone might be tempted to answer the Satan. Maybe part of the power that God granted to the Satan um, included the ability for the Satan to have fire rain down and send this tornado. Perhaps. Someone might suggest that the messenger in verse 16 was mistaken. It appeared to them that the fire came from God, but really, perhaps it was the instrumentality of Satan that had this occur. You could say the same thing with the tornado. Maybe that was within Satan's delegated authority. So we have the Sabaeans, we have the Chaldeans, we have the Satan. They were responsible for the evil that they brought about. But that's not the complete truth, I don't think. Because a right understanding of God's providence not only includes the use of means and second causes, but what is, if I could use the phrase from the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the first cause? It's God. God has done this to Job. And you may say, I prefer to say that God allowed this to happen. I prefer to say that God permitted this to happen. Well, that's fine, but that's not the way that Job analyzed the situation. Look at verses 20 through 21. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, one might suggest, well, Job is mistaken. He shouldn't look at it that way. He shouldn't say that the Lord has taken away. Well, look at verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. If nothing else, I think we have to say that verse 22 tells us that Job thus far is responding in the right way. His analysis in verse 21 is correct. He has not sinned, nor has he blamed God, that is, nor has he charged God with wrongdoing. Now we'll look more closely at these words of Job in a few moments, but I think we're faced with another question. Because I think the question raised by Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 is not, do I believe in God? I think the question raised here is, do I believe in a God who is like this? You understand, in the theft and destruction of all of his herds, Job's livelihood, all of his wealth, his savings, his checking, his IRA, his 401k, his securities, his stocks, his bonds, his hedge funds, everything that we think about today as our livelihood was in Job's flocks and his herds, and they're gone. In addition to that, and this makes us squirm, but I don't know how else to say it, God has just taken the lives of Job's ten children. I don't see any other way than to say that. God has done this. If you're getting nervous in your seat, I think you should be getting nervous in your seat. You can't say everything at once, so stick with me. But again, the question is, is this the God you believe in? Well, this is the only God there is. Consider these words, words you probably know from Isaiah 46. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken and truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. There is no other God for us to believe in. Now, as we're thinking through these implications, let me be clear. Neither I nor Job am charging God with wrongdoing, much less making God out to be the author of evil. We can't do that. That's a boundary we cannot cross. There is profound mystery here, but I think we have to be honest about these things, especially in order for us to see how the rest of the book plays out. We should also recognize that Job chapter 1 is not the only place in Scripture where disaster and pain are attributed to God. Just two quick examples. Lamentations 3, verse 38, where it says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Or another verse from Isaiah, this is 45, verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And we could look at other examples. And of course, we realize this is the most, um, perhaps the most difficult theological question that we're faced with. The fact that the Bible presents to us a God who is good and who dearly loves his children and yet his children experience evil and suffering, even when they've done nothing to deserve it. And in fact, the Bible is clear that God is sovereign over that very same evil and suffering, and not just passively. Another phrase from the Westminster Confession says that this God's providence works in a way that is not by a bare permission. While we still hold on to the fact that God is not the author of evil, we still have to realize that Scripture is telling us that God actively is bringing about everything in our lives, the good and the bad. Now, some attempt to resolve this dilemma in a couple of two unbiblical ways. Um, first of all, some would assert that, in fact, God is not sovereign over all things, and therefore he's not in control over evil and suffering. Now, you hear this not infrequently on television news media when liberal pastors and chaplains and other armchair theologians are interviewed after some terrible disaster takes place. And they belong, I guess, to the Society of Protecting God, saying, oh, God had nothing to do with this. That's one way to resolve this dilemma, is to say that God is not sovereign over evil and suffering, which is to say that... Um, God would um, perhaps like to do something about it, but he can't. His hands are tied. This is actually the thesis of a very bad book, which you may have heard of by Harold Kushner, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's effectively his thesis. Well, God's not in control of these bad things. So that's one of the book away. Another is, well, maybe to assert that, well, yes, God is indeed sovereign, and, and therefore in control over evil and suffering, but he chooses to, to do nothing about it. And therefore that empties God of his goodness. 
which really makes God out to be this capricious ogre, perhaps, that likes to see his children squirm. So, the scripture will not allow us to take either one of these options, to empty God of either his sovereignty or his goodness. We have to maintain them both, squarely in the face of evil and suffering, as puzzling as that may be. And it's one thing to talk about these things, theorize about them, talk about them in the abstract, but when you yourself are suffering or facing evil, it takes on a different cast. And I suppose I should say that while we already know that a robust view of God's sovereignty should be a comfort to people who are suffering, keep in mind that the setting of this class is different than when you're personally trying to help someone who's suffering. Please don't say to someone, God has done this to you. Now, I've used those words here in this setting. Don't say that to someone. We have to be honest about these things to understand the framework of the book of Job and we'll get into what it's like to give counsel to someone who's suffering in a couple of weeks. But I'm being very direct here, not necessarily the way you would with someone who is in the midst of suffering. So what do we make of all this in the end? Um, as I said, none of us should expect uh, this series or even these chapters to solve for us the problem of evil. Um, but perhaps we should look more at the way Job responds to what's happened to him in chapter 1. Um, Job, I think, has provided our application for us. Um, he responds well here in verse 21. Now next week, when you look at chapter 3, Job's response will take a very different, very dark turn. But for now, I think Job gives us three things that you and I should do when we're faced with evil and suffering in our own lives. Let me read verse 21 again. And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So first of all, we have to see the temporal or the temporary nature of our lives and our suffering. I think Job understood that um, despite all of his material prosperity, all of his possessions and his wealth, he knew that he didn't come into the world with all those things. And he knew that he wouldn't leave the world with all those things anyway. And so if God saw fit to take those away from Job, well then Job could be at some level content. Um, now this kind of response to naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there, that by itself might sound kind of stoic, kind of just resolutely taking what comes. But Job doesn't leave it there. He also recognizes God's sovereignty. Um, he understood God's providential hand in his suffering. Um, and we can probe some of the difficult aspects of that truth, but in the end, Job rests, I think, in the comfort of that truth. Uh, Job understands that God is in control. Now, Job will 
after this begin to ask the hard questions like why now, why me, why so severe. But for now, um, he's finding rest in a good place in the sovereignty of God. And why is the sovereignty of God a good place to find rest? Well, sometimes I think about it in the sovereignty of Jesus. Not that there's two different sovereignties. There's only one sovereignty of God. But think about Jesus, who came as a man and lived a life among men, who faced trial and temptation, suffered, not only to serve as our example, but I think obviously to serve as our substitute. We realize that so much of Jesus' suffering was for us. His life was for us. His death was for us. His suffering was for us. And Derek Thomas reminds us that, quote, union with Christ brings with it a union with his sufferings, end quote. So I think ultimately our rest and our peace in the face of suffering comes in our union with Jesus, whose grace is sufficient for us and whose power is made perfect in our weakness. And then finally, at the end of verse 21, we have praise. And it should be stated at this point that Satan right now is being shown a fool, and that should all make us smile. Because remember the thing that Satan said Job would do if God took away everything that Job had? Satan asserted that Job was going to curse God. Well, right now, Job is being victorious. He's doing the opposite. He hasn't cursed God. He's blessing him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, is it unbelievable to you that Job would respond in that way? It almost is to me. Is this the way I would respond if this happened to me? Well, I think probably not. I don't think any of us do know how we would respond if these things happened to us. But in the end, for today, this is how we should respond. I think the author of Job and Job himself is giving us in this case study to wisdom, this is the way we should respond when we face suffering and evil in our own lives. This is the way that someone responds who is blameless and upright and fears God and turns away from evil. Um, would that each of us respond in this way when we're faced with evil and suffering. To bless God's name, a God who is good, a God who is sovereign, but also a God that, yes, he gives, but sometimes he also takes away. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you are praiseworthy in all things, um, as you are very gracious to give, things that we're all undeserving of. We recognize that you also sometimes take away, and you bring forth good and ill in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would impress um, these truths on our hearts, that you are good and you are sovereign, and you can be trusted. Help us to respond like Job. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Scheffler is not here to give announcements.